In John chapter 13, where we have been for the last couple of weeks, um, Lord willing, wrap it up today, no promises, <laughs> but because you guys know me, uh, in the upper room, looking at what we call the upper room discourse, in 13 and 14 being actually in the upper room itself, but uh, in these five chapters, we see that John uh, really slows the pace uh, as he writes now, and he, and he gets into great detail, and uh, was looking at this, and I uh, came across an interesting statist- statistic that uh, as this, this gospel, I've mentioned before, we had 12 chapters that covered three and a half years, and we have five chapters that cover five hours. And so he slows down so much that if we took the three and a half years of Jesus's ministry and we went into the same detail that John does in these five chapters, it would fill 15 Bibles. So John does indeed slow down and begin to elaborate and to give great deal of these last hours of Jesus's earthly life. Uh, and, And we do well to heed the things that he has in it because there's just powerful, powerful teaching. We see here that Uh, In verse 2, that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Uh, And then after that, we looked at last week, uh, we looked at uh, what Jesus intended as he took a towel and he wrapped it around himself and then knelt down with a basin of water and scrubbed each of his disciples' feet with the towel that he was wrapped with. Interesting. I, I love that picture of him transferring their dirt onto his apron onto himself and, and, and exactly what he does symbolically uh, in that sense, but what he does with us spiritually through the work of the cross, taking our dirt so that we could actually see God. What an amazing thing. Uh, he gives this whole thing, and then it's interesting after that, we looked at it last week, he says, now, what, did he, what do you think I've been doing? What do you think that that means? And he then begins to teach his disciples about what it is to be a servant. We, we wrapped up last week with looking at five attributes of a servant, and I'm not going to go through those again, but we'll see here as we move into the text today that we're going to be talking about Judas. John, it's interesting, he sort of shifts the spotlight several places in the rest of this chapter. It goes to Judas and then it goes to, his, to Peter, and it goes to his men. And so we'll be looking at all three of those as we go through this. Uh, and, and, but I'm going to pick up in verse 15, uh, before we get to actually the text we're going to do business with today. Uh, he says, For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Uh, interesting, talking about servanthood, talking about going low, talking about others-centeredness instead of self-centeredness, instead of uh, esteeming ourselves as more important than others, we esteem others as more important than ourselves. These principles that the kingdom of God runs on, that it operates upon, being polar opposites to the principles that this world runs on. Uh, We could all sit down and read book after book after book, on servanthood, but it wouldn't do us any good unless we actually adopted the mindset of a servant. And that is what Jesus's intention was. It wasn't to bring in uh, a Christian tradition of foot washing. It was to bring in and to illustrate there was a need. These guys came to Passover and didn't take the time to wash each other's feet, and there wasn't anybody there to wash theirs. And so there they are, and Jesus actually sees what needs to be done and does it himself. 
a service not greater than his master. And so, uh, again, just in that context, he now begins to move into and to expose Judas and to, we'll look at that in these following verses. So picking it up in verse 18, he says, I don't speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. When he says, I know who I've chosen, it's that he didn't want his guys to think that he was surprised by Judas's betrayal. His betrayal would be complete very shortly. And, and again, through the prophetic word, Jesus often bolstered the fact that he was who he claimed to be and he came to do the, do the work that he was about to do. And he would use prophecy to bolster people's faith. The thing about prophecy is you have to believe the prophecy for it to actually enlarge your faith. And so that wasn't even what would be the complete deal. They couldn't see what was going on until after Jesus had been glorified. And he'll talk about that. So by saying he, he knew that who he had chosen, he's implying, I know that Judas is not. And so don't be upset by that, essentially is what he's getting at. But then he goes into this kind of cryptic saying, he says, he who eats bread with me uh, has lifted up his heel against me. And he's talking about a guy by the name of Ahithophel. Uh, I, was, I mentioned before the service this morning, I, I, Matt and Nick and I were standing back at the sound booth and I said, yeah, we're going to be talking about Ahithophel. And Matt said, what? And I said, Ahithophel. And he said, Gazuntite. And I, I thought, that is classic Matt. Um, but this guy, Ahithophel, I'm going to have trouble, I'm going to trip over that myself. Uh, interesting guy. Uh, he betrayed King David. And he was a close, trusted counselor of King David. And he got together with David's son Absalom and joined the rebellion against David. Uh, interesting guy. In Psalm 41.9, and that is specifically the verse that Jesus is quoting when he says, he who has taken bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Uh, Psalm 41.9 says this, uh, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And lifted up his heel is essentially saying, has betrayed me. Uh, so he was... He was definitely in David's inner circle. A couple of interesting things about Ahithophel. Uh, he was part of David's court. He was a very close part of David's court. And David did many things with him. We'll look at another psalm in a moment. But another thing that's interesting is there's a very, very good possibility, probability, that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Um, there was a guy that uh, was known to... to uh, you, it, and you'd have to, I'd have to take time and search it out. We're not going to do that this morning. You could look at it yourself if you'd like. But Bathsheba's father was a guy by the name of Eliam. Ahithophel's son was a guy by the name of Eliam. And so there's a very good possibility because of David's marriage with Bathsheba that Ahithophel came into the picture and was sort of a, a secret traitor, I guess. He... he never was all in, although he played the part. Uh, very similar to Judas in many ways. Uh, in Psalm 55, David talks more about this guy, and he says in verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me that I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, uh, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. Uh, 
But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. What he's saying here is Ahithophel and I worshiped together. Ahithophel was more than a friend. He was like a brother. Uh, and the parallels are interesting between he and Judas. Uh, both of them were close to the one that they had betrayed. And, and Jesus, again, had reason to be using this guy to talk about his coming betrayal. Uh, both were vindicated by God. David was vindicated by God because what happened was Ahithophel had this scheme that he joined in with Absalom and it didn't work out. God protected David. He protected the throne. Absalom's scheme failed and Ahithophel hung himself. Interesting. Um, Jesus, of course, was vindicated through the work of the cross. He who had no sin became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God and, in him. And, and so, uh, and, and again, we see that Judas, after his plan was carried out, what did he do? He took his own life. He hung himself. Interesting. So, all of that comes to bear as we look now at verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass that you may believe that I am. Again, he is in italics. It's added. Uh, he's again stating his co-equality with the Father. That you may believe that I am from God, that I am God, the Son, in that sense. So John again underscores the prophetic. That you may believe. John's purpose for this entire gospel uh, we see in, in, at the end of the gospel where he says that these things are written that you may believe. And all through this, I mean, almost a hundred times he states this word believe, pistuo, that, that word that means more than just giving mental assent to a doctrine. It's not that kind of believe that he's talking about. He's talking about this is a verb. It's an active word. If you guys remember English, a verb is action. And it's the kind of belief that says, you know, if you believe that the building is on fire, you're not going to stick around. You're out the door. That kind of belief. It's a belief that produces action. Faith produces works. It, we're not saved by our works, but faith produces works. James, Jesus' brother, when he wrote the book of James, the epistle that James wrote to the Jews of dispersion, the ones who were being really badly persecuted, he said, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. And so, again, we see that John's purpose in this, Jesus' purpose in this, is to bring people to a true, abiding, active faith. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in a nebulous God, but it's faith in the person and the work of Jesus, the Messiah, the work that he accomplished on your behalf and mine. Verse 20, now most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, that sounds like a mouthful. He uses the word receives four times there. And yet, remember I was talking about in John 17, Jesus talks about, Father, I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in these men and they're in me. And so we have this whole deal that, that we'll see and we'll unpack that when we get there. It's a great passage when he's praying, the, the Lord's Prayer there as he prays and he prays for his men. He actually prays for you and I. Uh, and so he's saying that, that essentially that Judas, the devil, wouldn't win that the work of Jesus would continue and they would be sent as his representative. That's what he's saying in this. So now, he's, again, he's talking about Judas 
And so there's also a, a message here to Judas. That if you don't receive, you reject. There's no middle ground. You don't kind of receive and kind of reject. You either receive or you reject. It's one side or the other. Very serious. And that rejecting him, Jesus is communicating to Judas in this, that rejecting him is rejecting God. And so when he says this, that uh, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and who receives me receives him who sent me, he's telling Judas straight out, understand what you're doing. He's telling his guys, you're going to be sent. Judas' betrayal is not going to affect the plan of God. As this thing unfolds, Judas's betrayal is actually known to him. It wasn't surprising to him, and his work would be carried out. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is the same troubled in spirit as Jesus experienced. Remember, he was at the tomb of Lazarus and said he was troubled in his spirit. You know how sometimes, I know sometimes I'll say, I love that person's spirit. They have a real, that, that person has a sweet spirit or they have a real servant's heart or they have, uh, and, and in this, he has a troubled spirit. That means he's churned up. Uh, the word literally means wrenched, that he's wrenched on the inside. He, he, he's troubled, he's upset. This is upsetting to him. And you gotta realize that Jesus didn't just, this stuff didn't just bounce off of him because he's God. He's fully banned. These things troubled him. He had the same emotions as you and I. He felt the impact of this betrayal coming, and he didn't like it. And he loved Judas. He loved him to the end. We'll see that as we go. He knew his betrayer, and he wanted to inspire confidence in his men. Um, Verse 22, and the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, these guys, Jesus, I mean, out of the blue, at this supper, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And, and the men are, I mean, they're kind of unhinged by this. They're like, what are you talking about? I mean, we look at it, we kind of look at it, we've studied it before. We know Judas is the bad guy, you know, with the long, thin mustache and all that. But, but you know, we, we think about it, we see the end from the beginning, but you've got to realize these guys are living through this. I mean, they're walking through this upper room experience for the first time. And Jesus, this guy that they'd spent three and a half years with, and now they're kind of excited. Remember, we talked, they're like, Whoa, he's going to set up his kingdom and we're right here with him. And, whoa, maybe I'll have an office next to his. And, you know, they've kind of got this whole arrogant attitude about it. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. No, you don't understand. Let me tell you what's going on. One of you guys is going to double cross me. One of you guys doesn't belong to me. One of you guys is about to do something that you can't unwind. This is mentioned in all four Gospels, this, this statement that Jesus makes and the guys being perplexed by it. Uh, they were, it says in, in Matthew 26 that they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? I think that's a great question. I remember being a kid and you know, somebody say, well, who got into the whatever, whatever, you know, who ate my pizza in the fridge? And everybody's there kind of with their hands behind their back going, uh, not me, not, no, uh-uh, I'm... <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and, and it's like I would line up to deny that I had any part of it. Uh, we had a guy around our house that we named him, I don't know, because I'd ask, well, you know, who took the, oh, I don't know. The kids are just, they, automatically, I don't know. Oh, oh, it was him again. All right, I got it. And so, but, but here these guys, they're so sincere. They're so in love with Jesus. They actually are asking him, is it me? I mean, they're troubled now. They're, really? I, I know, I, I remember asking for a meeting with somebody in the church here one time, and they went, oh man, I was kind of freaked out. I just kind of thinking, I wonder what I did. Did I do something wrong? Did I, you know, what was it that was going on? And I just said, no, Pete, calm down. It's fine. I just want to ask you something. And it, whatever it was, it was some innocuous thing. But these guys are upset. They're, they're really kind of focused now, and it kind of jolts them interesting thing is in Matthew 26 also kind of blending the gospel accounts on this. Judas is one of the guys that he says, it is, is it I? Uh, have, have you ever, you read the paper, you hear on the news about somebody that committed some crime and he's actually part of the search party, you know, and, and he's like trying to cover his rear end and all of that. And he's out there acting like he's, and that's what Judas is doing because Judas comes to Jesus to this point in Matthew, he says, is it I? And Jesus responds to him. He says, you have said it. In other words, yeah, it is. Uh, so they're messed up about this. They, they, they don't understand. Verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Uh, John uses this term, whom Jesus loved, four times in this gospel. Each time it's connected with either the cross or the resurrection. Here in the upper room, uh, he refers to himself. The writer of this gospel is the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, also at the cross itself, he refers to him that, himself that way in John 19. And then at the empty tomb, when he goes to the empty tomb, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved there at the tomb. And then with the risen Jesus, the risen Christ at the Sea of Galilee, all the way out in John 21, right near the end of this gospel, he uses that term again. It's interesting. I used to think, and, and I would poke fun at John. It was like, well, if I was writing the gospel, I would refer to myself as the one that Jesus loved too. Kind of an arrogant thing, you know, and I'd look at it like, well, I'm the one that Jesus loved and not like these other guys, but that's not what he was doing at all. You got to remember here, John is about 17 years old. He's a teenager, He's a young guy. He's just getting started. And I believe that he was so enamored, that he was so amazed at the depth and the power of love that Jesus had for him, that he never moved away from that fact, that he was the one whom Jesus loved, that he gloried in Jesus's love, but he didn't boast egotistically about it. And so that's why he words it the way that he does. As an old man writing these things down, writing this gospel out, he refers to himself that way because he's enamored. He is totally captivated by the love of Jesus. And I hope that you are too. You've got to understand, folks, above everything else, it's about the love of God. It's about the love of Jesus. It's about his love poured out poured out through the work that he performed at the cross, poured out through his Holy Spirit who comes to take up residence inside of our hearts to actually guide us through this life. I love what's coming up in the Gospel of John here because as he begins to reveal the work of the Holy Spirit because he's getting ready to leave, that he says, I won't leave you as orphans. Why? Because he loves us. We have his Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts because he loves us 
because he doesn't want us to try to parse this life out, to go through this life with all of its heartache and trials and things that we go through and, and, and the loss and all of the stuff that this life piles on. He doesn't want us to be as orphans. He wants us to be connected to him because he loves us with that kind of love, the same kind of love that John was captivated by as he wrote these words. Be encouraged, my friends, be encouraged. He knows all about me and he loves me anyway. He knows all about you and he loves you the same. That's the depth of his love. It's amazing. It really is amazing grace. So, remember I talked about, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the table. You know, they were at a triclinium table. It's a three-sided table in, in that it makes sense that John is on one side, Judas is on the other, and that Peter is likely across the table. And, and it may not have been that way. I mean, that's a guess, but it's an educated guess because we know that those types of tables were common in the first century, about a foot off the ground, and they would recline at the table. They would actually lie down uh, on one elbow and eat with the other hand. And that put John, if John was on Jesus's left, it put him in a position to just lean over on his chest. Uh, if he was on his right, uh, then probably would have been a little harder, but I mean, they worked it out. We know that. But the point is, is, is Peter motions to Jesus or to John. He sees, he gets John's attention. Jesus says this, one of you guys is going to betray me. And that immediately gets Peter's attention because Peter's thinking, well, after he finished saying, is it I? Because he was part of that. Uh, he's, as I mentioned before, he's kind of the protector of the bunch. And I think he wants to know because he's going to deal with it. <laughs> and so he's saying, you know, and he motions to John like, you know, have you ever, you can't get somebody's, you can't talk to them maybe because of the, the noise or whatever. And he's kind of like going, what's he mean to John? And, and so John just kind of leans up and he begins to question Jesus about it. Um, interesting though, before we move into that, uh, as far as the seating goes, this is something that I read that Spurgeon wrote. He says, a disciple sat at each side of Jesus. One of them was John the divine and the other was Judas, the devil. One of them was the seer of the apocalypse. The other was the son of perdition. Talk about contrast. Talk about one guy on one side, one guy on the other. Completely different motivation, completely different. One's a disciple, one's not. And you could just go down the list of the contrast between these two men. Verse 26, and Jesus answered, said, it is he who, to whom I shall give the piece of bread, uh, or the King James sop. I like bread better. <laughs> it just sounds bleh. Um, but he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now this is significant, folks. This is, uh, in their culture, you honored a friend uh, by dipping the bread and handing it to them. He's, Jesus is the host of this dinner and he's honoring someone. He's, he would honor someone by doing, dipping the bread in the sauce and he hands it to Judas as a sign of honor. Again, Jesus is loving this guy to the very last minute. And until Judas took the money and brought the soldiers there further on in this gospel, he had opportunity to repent. He had opportunity to turn. We know him as a son of perdition. That wasn't because he had to do it. 
like you and I, he had a free will and he could have changed his course at any time. So we know that God knew ahead of time. We see a, a, a great example of predestiny versus free will. We see both of them in play here. God knew that he was going to do it. And he was the son of perdition. Son of hell is essentially what that means. And yet it wasn't until he took the bread that Satan actually possessed him. So no one at the table knew uh, and if they would have known, they would have tried to stop Judas. Verse 27, now after the piece of bread, Satan entered into him, and then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So some were thinking, well, you know, Judas is, yeah, hurry back, Judas. You, you, you're on an errand, essentially. I think it's interesting, too, because these guys lived on the generosity of others. And, and, and yet, they were generous with others, indicating here that they would give a portion of their money to the poor. They would give a portion of their money in serving God, even though they lived on the money that they received from others. I think that's a great example uh, again, servanthood is key. It doesn't say here, but I, I'm also in a place where I, I think about this. Here, Jesus does this gesture of friendship and high esteem in giving the bread to Judas. Have you ever noticed that people who are really, really aggressive, I think about people that are champions of the uh, pro-choice movement, sometimes very aggressive. And I've often wondered, are those people who have got the scars of the acts of, of actually carrying out abortions with their own bodies, and that drives them to this aggressive stance because they're trying so hard to work it out in themselves and they're not able to. Uh, I really wonder if Jesus honoring Judas at this point, we know Satan had already put the temptation to betray Jesus, Jesus in his heart. That's what it tells us at the beginning of this chapter. And yet I also wonder, did something break inside of Judas and, and solidify him on his course through the kindness that he was being shown? He, was, he, he, he had to fall on one side or the other. He had to either harden it up, harden his heart and be cemented in his course or he had to soften at this gesture of love that Jesus poured out at the Last Supper to him. There's a lot going on behind the scenes here. There's a lot going on in the spiritual realm that we don't quite understand, and yet it, it stands to reason that Judas had to become cemented at this point in his intention to go. And it says so. I mean, it tells us that having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately and it was night in verse 30. I think that that's telling. Um, in John chapter 8, verse 12, we've studied this in months past. He says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And what's implied by that, he who does not follow him will walk in darkness. And I, it, it's not escaped on me that it's not just the time of day that, Jesus, that Judas goes out, but it's night. And, and we know now that night has fallen. Uh, the supper began at sunset because that's when the Passover meal would kick into high gear. Um, 
it's interesting that, uh, uh, again, implied, after taking the bread from Jesus, he is set on his course. Verse 31, so when he'd gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. That's a lot of glorifieds. In two verses, he uses the word glorified, 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 and then glorify, glorify. He uses that word five times. And that's a, you know, frankly, there are times where words, the biblical words become kind of churchy to me. And, and I don't want glorified to be churchy. There's a deep and, and a, a, a passionate meaning to that. Um, it's interesting because to the world, the cross was humiliating and it was disgraceful. It was cursed. And to Jesus, the cross was the means by which he would be glorified. He saw glory coming. I mentioned the shadow of the cross is all over this chapter. It's coming up. I mean, it is right around the corner. And Jesus is saying now, Judas is gone. He gets up, he walks out. And Jesus knows. Now, it wasn't hinging on Judas. But Jesus knows that now that his betrayal is in full swing, that, that things have been ratcheted up, that this thing is now, it's not just something that he's talked about. It's not something that, remember in Matthew 16, there's a shift in his ministry. And he says, now I got to head for Jerusalem to be, to be crucified by the leaders and to be lifted up. He talks about that in Matthew 16. There was a shift in his ministry. And for that last year, he was headed for the cross, headed for, I mean, he was through his whole ministry, but specifically revealing to his men that this was coming. Now, so it's no longer something that he's looking ahead towards. It's here. It's now. And so when he says now, the Son of Man is glorified, he means now. The wheels are turning. Everything's in motion. Judas has gone out into the night to talk to the religious leaders, to gather the Roman soldiers, and they'll meet him at the garden because they knew that that's where Jesus always met his men that night. So this is a very significant turning point in this five hours. There's something remarkable that happens on the other side of it, though, and you'll see a tenderness and an intimacy that Jesus now begins to usher in because now he's dealing exclusively with his own. And there's a great, if you pay attention to the subtleties in, in, the, in the verses here in the, in the text, you'll see that he begins now to talk with a great intimacy. You'll notice on your bulletin, it says little children, because now Jesus can confidently come to his men and say, oh guys, I've just desired to, to, to eat this Passover with you. It's what he says in Luke 22, and, and before I suffer, and, and there's an intimacy, there, there's a depth that comes. And for these next chapters, we'll see, because Judas is out of the way and he's exclusively dealing with his men, that there's a great intimacy that comes about. The word glorify, I, I wrote three different interpretations of three different definitions, uh, that, that really tie to the text here when he talks about um, glory and what it means. It's the recognition of his honor and his majesty to be glorified, for Jesus to be glorified. As we look at him, we recognize his majesty. We recognize his greatness. Um, another definition is to beautifully illuminate 
Uh, I like that. Um, I remember hearing a Bible study, and I may have shared it here before, but uh, if I painted this beautiful painting, Doug, you would know about this, uh, being an artist. Uh, if I painted this beautiful painting, and I, and I put a, uh, after it dried, I put a, a, a cloth over it, I went down to the hardware store and I bought one of those little brass, you know, art lights, you know, and I, I screwed that to the top of the frame so that I could turn it on and, and all. And then I put a cover over it and I invited everyone over to my house. I want to show you this beautiful painting. I've been working on this masterpiece for months. And, and we got to the point of the unveiling and I tugged off that cloth. And as you filed by, what would it be like if everybody went up to that painting and they said, wow, what a beautiful light. Oh, I just love the brass. That's really nice. Frame's kind of nice too. Oh, look at how beautiful the beam comes. And, you know, and all they would talk about is the light. No, that's not it. The light is there for one purpose, to glorify the painting. See? And so when the Son of Man is glorified, it's, we're illuminating him and, and we're, we're shining the light on him in a bright beautiful way. The Son of Man is about to be glorified. Uh, the third definition here is that he's the object of our praise and our worship. He's glorified in it. See? And so glory is not just a dry, dusty, religious-sounding word. It's a beautiful word, and it's one that should be used well in our vocabulary. Here's something that someone wrote re regarding his being glorified. He calls his death his glory. He esteems his crowns, uh, crown of thorns more precious than Solomon's diadem. He looks upon his welts as spangles. He blows on the face, his blows on the face as ingots, his wounds as gems, his spittings on as sweet ointment, and his cross as his throne. Isn't that good? That's the Son of Man being glorified. Verse 33 Jesus here, as I mentioned, immediately when Judas is out of the room, when he's out into the night, he begins to address the other 11 guys that are here. And he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, this is not an insult you know, oh, you're acting like a bunch of kids. That's not what he's saying. Now, this is an intimate term. This is something that it's, it's tenderness that he's showing these guys. He's showing them that he cares. He's recognizing their present dependence. He's also recognizing their lack of maturity at this point. They are as his children here. And as his children, in that sense, he's saying little children. In other words, dependence in that sense. I want to talk to you about some things. And, and, and now he'll begin to unpack the things that he has for them in depth, in detail in these next chapters. And you got to realize too that these guys are reeling at this point. He said, I'll be with you a little, a little while longer and, and, and then I'll be gone. And I would imagine, and it's sort of proven out by the text that Peter didn't hear anything after that, that he kind of got hung up. Have you ever done that? Somebody says something really profound and they keep talking and you're still thinking about what, what, what on earth? That, you know, my goodness, what is he talking about? He's going to leave? I, what about my office? You know, that, the whole deal. And so they're, 
they're reeling at this point. These guys had left everything for him. They had spent three and a half years being blown out of the water time after time. Every time they turned around, he was doing something they didn't expect and, or rebuking them, saying, get behind me, or you know, whatever. And I mean, these guys were fully invested in him. And now after all of this, and he just a few days ago rode into the city and proclaimed himself to be Messiah and the people with the palm fronds and Hosanna and all that. And, and what do you mean you're going to leave? I mean, this would have just screeched their gears to a halt. They, it would have just been hard. Think about being in that room. I talked about not wanting to look down on these verses, but walk through them with these guys it would have stripped your emotional gears to hear this. You would have just gone, well, wait a minute. What are you talking about? You're going to leave. And where I'm going, you can't come? I don't understand. I don't get it. What are you talking about, Lord? I believe in you. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe that you're the King of kings, Lord of lords, and the creator of all that is, and all of that. That's a settled issue with me. But you're going to go? And that's exactly what he's telling them. And if there was noise at the table before this, you could bet your bottom dollar that it got quiet in that room as these guys tried to digest what Jesus was saying. Hard, hard stuff. When Jesus addressed these guys as little children, it's one of the most, it's the only time that Jesus uses this term in the New Testament but it's not the only time that it's used. As an old man, probably in Ephesus, John, he was so old that tradition tells us they had to carry him in and out of the building. But in 1 John, he uses this term towards other believers. I cannot help but realize that this made such a significant impact on him as John sat there and he penned this gospel out and he's remembering that Jesus addressed us as little children and perhaps the look in his eye contains such love. And he's saying, I'm not going to be here very long. I got to talk to you about some things. That John now used that same term as he addressed his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not lost on me. I pray it's not lost on you because he uses the same loving, intimate term. The apostle of love addressing others the way that Jesus addressed him as a 17-year-old kid. He's saying, love one another as I've loved you. In verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I've loved you, and that you also love one another. By this will all know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Sadly, this is probably the most broken commandment in God's word. He says, above everything else, they'll know you by your love that you have for one another. And it sickens me, it breaks my heart when I see the infighting that goes on in some churches. I pray that's never named among us. I pray that the spirit of peace and the bond of love and the unity that we have we're a small church, but I love what people say. You're a loving bunch, and we are, because the love of God is being shed abroad in our hearts by design, intentionally. I'm going to look past those cracks, warts, 
wrinkles, flaws that you have, and I pray you look past mine because it has to be the love of God. It has to be the grace of God. And, and, and like I said, sadly, this is broken often. And if you're tempted to break that because you have a hill you're going to die on, I pray you would just ask the Lord to show you your heart. There's only one hill to die on. It's already, it's already happened. It's called Calvary. And he did that so that we would be free to love. This is the greatest commandment. When Jesus spoke these words, it superseded everything else. Interesting, there's a, a word here that's used. It's called kainos. K-A-I-N-O-S. It's a Greek word, and it's the word new. And it's different than uh, other uses. What it means is it means fresh, new, unused. It means sparkly clean, brand new. We'd call it brand new. And he's saying, I have a brand new commandment for you. A brand new one? But wait, I thought that in Matthew 22, when the guys were trying to trap you, you gave the great commandment. Well, listen, I'll read it again, and, and I want you to see the, the contrast here. He says, you love the, you, in Matthew 22, Jesus says, the guys come to him, I'll set it up first. They come to him, and, and they're trying to trap him. They say, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And, because, and they were always trying to hem him in. And he doesn't go to the Ten Commandments. They're, trying, they're saying, what's the biggest of the Ten Commandments, Jesus? Come on, tell us, come on. And, and he goes to the backwaters of the Old Testament, and he, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang the law and the prophets. He didn't say on these three. He says, love God, love your neighbor, you love yourself. That's three. No, because self-love, if you look at the, the whole of God's word, self-love is not something that we have a lot of trouble with. Actually, it causes us a lot of trouble. So what he's saying is, he's saying, you know, love God with all your heart and your mind and your strength and your soul. He's, love God with everything you got and then love other people the way you love yourself, which you don't have a lot of trouble doing. So contrast that. That's, it is the great commandment. This is the greatest commandment, though. He says, I want you to love other people the way that I've loved you. Big difference. It's not about comparing the way you love yourself with how you love other people. It's comparing the way I love you with how you love other people. That's why this is the great commandment. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, you will absolutely flop if you try to carry out the great commission without walking in the great commandment. It's by his love. He says, I want other people to see this. I want you to be known by the love that you have for one another because that's what will attract people. People will say, there's something different about him. There's something different about her because, man, I really blew it. And they're just saying, hey, it's fine. I'm okay. I love you or whatever it is. I mean, they see that there's this difference. The mark of the covenant is love. The language of heaven is love. The old covenant, do it and live. The new covenant, it's done. It's finished. Therefore, love. Huge. This is huge. And, and he launches into this. This is the first significant thing he has to say once Judas has left the room. Because now he is going deep with his men. 
and by virtue of the scripture going deep with us. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, Peter, like I said, he's stuck. He's still, you know, he probably just totally bailed on this whole love thing. And I'm sure he got it later. Don't get me wrong, because he talks about it. Great maturity. I mean, between Jesus or Peter, you know, warming his hands at the end of his fire and, you know, open mouth, engaged brain, that kind of Peter that we see before. uh, And, you know, and then after receiving the Holy Spirit, standing there on the temple steps, healing a guy, preaching, and 3,000 people come to the Lord. And, and then you look at First and Second Peter, and you say, man, what maturity. And yet here, he's stuck. He heard Jesus say, I'm going away, and you can't come. And so in verse 36, he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him and said, where I'm going, you can't follow me now but you'll follow me afterward, and Peter would indeed follow him afterward. Eleven of the twelve, if you include the Apostle Paul, uh, would die violent deaths for their testimony of Christ. Peter uh, stood in the prison cell where he was held in Rome at the Mamertine prison. Uh, He and the Apostle Paul both. And when they hauled him out of there and they took him up on the, the steps of the forum, and made a public spectacle of him. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. And this is extra biblical information. But he said, and so they crucified him upside down in Rome as a prisoner of Christ. Not a prisoner of Rome. Both he and Paul, Paul was very clear to say, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. That was the love that they had for Jesus. And so Peter's hung up on this. And he says, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. He was sincere. He didn't have the power to carry it off, but he was sincere. He really loved Jesus. Something interesting here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch out to John 21 for a minute. When Jesus is at the shore, the guys go out, Jesus told them, Terry here in Jerusalem, until I come for you, and, and, and while they're waiting on Jesus, Peter kind of gets fed up. He's thinking, you know what? This thing did not turn out good at all. And he's bummed out. And he says, I'm going fishing. Not saying recreation. He's making a career choice here. He's going to leave the fishers of men thing and go back to the nets. So he and the other guy say, yeah, we'll go with you. So they go up to the, the Sea of Galilee and, and they're fishing. They fish all night, catch nothing. And then... Some guy on the shore has a campfire laid and some fish already on the fire. And he says, hey, guys, come and have breakfast. <laughs> Paraphrasing, but that's what he does. So they get to the shore. And about that time, they catch uh, more fish than they could haul in. And Peter, part of why I say, I think he was a big guy. He's the one that hauls in the net. I mean, big, strong guy. So they, they haul in the nets. And I think it was 153 fish. I, I, I still wonder why they count them. But, well, no, I've done fishing. And I like to count my fish, too. But, um, At any rate, when Jesus restores Peter, he says, do you love me more than these? And I'll talk about it more when we get there, folks. But I think it's very interesting because there's been a lot of speculation on the these that is mentioned there. Was it the fish? Did Jesus say, do you love me more than these? Was it the nets? Do you love me more than these? Was it the boats? Do you love me more than your fishing business? I don't think so. 
I personally believe, it doesn't say, but I think that we get a, a, we get a clue here that he's talking about his other men. In Matthew 26, when, when, when Peter, when Jesus talks about, it gives the great commandment, and, and then Peter's talking about, I'll lay down my life for your sake. In Matthew 26, Matthew gives us a little bit more perspective on this. He says, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I'll never be made to stumble. So Peter set himself above the other men. And then he was the first one to fall. And so I really believe that that's proved out in John 21, that when he's talking about these, that he's not only restoring Peter to the ministry and calling him to a lifelong ministry, but he's restoring Peter with the men. And there would be a humility there, kind of a hanging his head. And again, we'll talk about it in more depth when we get there. There would be a humility there that wasn't there before. Remember I talked about Peter had not yet been broken. And through the things that were coming to him this night, he would be broken as he had never been broken before. He would see how pitiful self-effort is when it comes to serving God. Because he's asserting self-effort here. And it will never be enough, folks. That's why it's so important. I remember when I went into jail ministry, the guy that I went with had been, he, he went to Folsom. He went to Folsom for four years and never had clearance. He walked up to the prison one day. He prayed about it for a few years. And he walked up to the prison and, he, and the, the guard said, you're the preacher? And he said, yeah. And he said, come on, follow me. And he never filled out a piece of paper. For four years he went in there and, and they had this great study, Bible outreach going and all that. A bunch of guys came to the Lord and it was a fabulous ministry. Well, he was the same guy that was teaching me how to do jail ministry years ago when I was doing jail ministry. And he looked at me real seriously one time. He said, you're going to do this? And I said, well, we'll see. He said, you better be called. Why is that? Self-effort will not get it here. This is a very dangerous ministry. And if you're not called, you could get in real trouble. It could cost you a lot. And I, I never forgot that. And, I, and it just served as a, as a lesson to me that when we serve God, we want to be sure that he's in it, that he's doing these things. He's going before us. That's why we pray, Lord, go before me in this. Yeah, there's not a Sunday that goes by, and I'll just be transparent with you guys, that I don't, I don't possess a big load of confidence in myself. I have a pit in my stomach when I come up here. Why? Because I know that if he doesn't show up, it ain't happening. It's got to be through his anointing. It's got to be through his anointing on the speaking, but also on the hearing. Because if you don't have ears to hear, that's why I pray for that. I do that intentionally. You're not going to hear. It's going to be a book report. Great. Have fun. Go get lunch. You're not going to be changed. Things are not going to happen in the spiritual realm unless you yield yourself to the working of his spirit. Ask him to give you ears to hear. So, it's not self-effort. And we see Peter here with this great gesture, wonderful gesture, totally based in self-effort. And it wouldn't be until he was humbled to where he actually was pliable and useful to the Lord. So Jesus answers him in verse 38. He says, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. I, it doesn't say what was going on in the room, but I, I, I really believe that when Peter gestured that, yeah, these other guys, they'll bail on you, but I won't, I would imagine that they were all looking at him. Now, Jesus is talking to everybody now, and, and everybody is hearing him, and that's proved out when we get into chapter 14. We'll see that Thomas kind of weighs in pretty early on, and the other guys, but 
the point is, is this is a tense moment in the upper room. Uh, Peter has just gestured that, man, I'm not like these other guys that are here. And Peter's, and Jesus is essentially taking him on about it lovingly. But really, Peter, you're going to lay down your life for me? Uh, I'm telling you, you're going to deny me. But I want you guys to understand something here. Jesus is very firm with Peter. He's very serious-minded with him. He prophesies over him at this point, and the chapter ends. Bad idea. Chapter and verse markings are added by man. The scene doesn't end. We go right into chapter 14, and I want to look at chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, as we close this morning, because Jesus is dealing with Peter. He's just told him, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. Now, Peter's betrayal would be one that was repented of. Judas's would be one that was not. So I want you to understand, before the night was out, these guys would betray Jesus. They would bail on him. And yet they would come back with hearts that were broken for him. And Jesus is so tender and so gracious with these guys, the way he is with us. He immediately says, and I picture him still looking at Peter, let not your heart be troubled, Pete. He's talking to all his guys. He says, you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. That's a bad translation. It's dwelling places, dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. He's telling Peter, where I'm going, you can't come, but this is my purpose for going. See, this is part of chapter 13. It's very, very clear. And that was God's intention. And so it's a, and, and I'm not trying to take issue with the translators that put the, or whoever that, that put the chapter marks where they are. This is one of those that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, it's sort of a new thought, but it's a continuation of the scene in the upper room that's carried on from chapter 13 because Peter's saying, wait a minute, where are you going? And, and Jesus is saying, I, you can't come. Oh, I can, really, I will, I, I can do it. Uh, and, and just in his total misunderstanding of what's going on, and, and he's saying, Peter, you're troubled. You don't have to be troubled. And brothers and sisters, when we have things that come to us that we don't understand, it's very easy to begin to be troubled and to begin to strive. My wife will tell you that something that, that about me is when I realize that I've begun to strive over something. And what I mean by that is being kind of churned up, being wrenched on the inside over something. Something is really troubling me and I start to strive. That is an indicator for me that something's out of sorts. And in the same way that if I wake up with a sore throat in the morning, I have a physical symptom that says, you know what, something's going on with your body and you need to address it. When I begin to strive, when the, the Holy Spirit shows me and he reveals my heart, John, you're striving over this, you don't need to be. That's a symptom. And it's usually something that drives me, first of all, to prayer. Lord, show me what you want in this. Or, but but it's, it's a symptom of, you know, I don't need to strive over the things of God. Uh, I, I don't want to strive over this church. It's God's church. I have a ministry here just like you do. And, and, and you know, if it comes to striving, I really don't want that. And so at that point, I have to elevate my thinking and say, Lord, give me your mind. Give me your heart. And, and we would do well 
when we're striving over something. Peter is striving, and Jesus is saying, you know what? You don't have to have your heart be troubled in this, Pete. I've got this. I've got it. I'm working a plan that you have no concept of at this point. You will, but you don't now. You just have to walk by faith. Let's pray. Father, in those times where we are perhaps faithless, we know that you carry us even then. We see in these words uh, the men not grasping what it is Jesus is doing, and yet we know that, first of all, that doesn't deter him, and secondly, that it doesn't deter you from pouring out your mercy, your compassion, your grace, uh, your comfort on us. I pray for those here, Lord, uh, who may be going through things and perhaps there's been striving, perhaps you're putting your finger on an area. I pray, Father, that as we take a moment and do business with you, that we would simply appropriate you in the midst of the things that we're dealing with. I pray, Father, that as Jesus with these guys, exhorting them to not let their heart be troubled, that that would be your exhortation to each of us this morning. We thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you for uh, just how wonderful, how, how durable your word is and, and for the way that you have put these things down for our benefit. We yield ourselves afresh to the working of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that as you reach into us and you conform us to the image of your Son, that you would find willing vessels. We put ourselves afresh in your hands, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And they all said, Amen.